Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Next, we have a quick follow-up on some stories you might have been hearing. COVID parties are not a thing. You might have seen stories about college students throwing parties to intentionally infect others with coronavirus, but if you dig deeper into the stories, they quickly fall apart. To be clear, people can and are getting sick by partying in close quarters, but they are not throwing COVID-specific parties. For more on this story, we'll speak to Gilad Edelman, senior writer at Wired. So the COVID party story functions like a classic urban legend where whenever you try to chase down the actual underlying fact, what you get is just a chain of rumors and you never get to the actual evidence. So I started writing on this after that Alabama story came out that you mentioned, the story that was going around and this really blew up. I mean, I saw it all over social media. It got covered by the Associated Press, CNN, you know, major, major publications. The story that college kids in Tuscaloosa, which is home of University of Alabama and other schools, were they weren't just partying. They were going to parties with someone with a known positive case of COVID, and then they were betting on who could get sick first, who could get a positive test first. And my editor, Dan, said to me, this doesn't sound true. (laughs) Look into it. And so when I looked into it, the first thing I noticed was all the stories about it in the different publications, they were all just linking back to original reporting from a local TV station in Tuscaloosa. And if you looked at what that reporting was based on, it was based entirely on comments that a city council member made to a reporter from that station. But in those comments, she didn't provide any evidence. It seemed as though she was just passing along something she had heard. And, you know, I reached out to her. I didn't hear back. I reached out to other local officials, but I did manage to get in touch with the state health agency and they had no evidence of any intentional COVID parties. And so I wrote that up. And the point that I made was that these stories always follow a really similar pattern. And it didn't start with Alabama. Back in March, April, May, there were stories from Washington State, Kentucky and other places about these supposed COVID parties where people were trying to get sick and get it over with. And they always followed the same pattern, which is some public official says this is happening, but they don't say that they have firsthand knowledge of it. They heard it from someone. And usually that someone heard it from someone else. And so in all of these stories of COVID parties, there has yet to be any actual proof or firsthand evidence. The University of Alabama conducted an investigation. They found no students that had participated in this. Obviously, students can lie, but... They said they didn't find any evidence of it. And this leads us to the latest story, which was a guy who on his deathbed said he thought coronavirus was a hoax and he went to a coronavirus party and that's where he got it. I wrote about the Alabama stuff a couple weeks ago and kind of naively thought maybe I was done writing about this. You know, I wagged my finger at all the reporters who were passing this stuff along without trying to get to the bottom of it. But then just over this past weekend, this story blows up out of San Antonio. As you say, the story supposedly is that a 30-year-old guy who died of coronavirus confessed to his nurse on his deathbed that he thought it was a hoax. Then he went to a party to see if it was real, and he got sick. And 
this kind of made my antenna go up because it really seemed to fit the pattern where it's this kind of game of telephone, this chain of communication. And in this case, it can't be verified because this person tragically died. And so looking into this one, again, it became clear pretty quickly that there was no hard evidence that anybody could point to of this supposed COVID party happening. And also the concept of the COVID party had to change to fit these new facts. Because if you remember, the story used to be people were going to get sick and get it over with. But this person supposedly didn't believe in the coronavirus. And so in reports about this, reporters had to kind of bend the concept and say, well, it's a party where people go to find out if the coronavirus is real. And all these stories are very analogous to what we've heard in the past. And maybe people have had experience with themselves, you know, chicken pox parties, things like that. Get your kids together, let them all get it and get it over with kind of thing. So our brains, when we hear these stories, we fill in all the gaps. We say, oh, yeah, that could possibly be true. Oh, yeah, those are dumb college students. Oh, man, that guy deserves it because he thought it was a hoax. And really, you know, our brains fill in a lot of the gaps. Like I said, I, I fell for it, too. I just took it for face value and didn't investigate it myself. So what's the bottom line on this? Because I, I like the way you write in the article. Does this mean that COVID parties are gulp, a hoax? Not necessarily. Give us the final line on this. So the bottom line is two things. First of all, people are definitely partying, and that's bad. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm in Miami right now, and people are definitely having raging house parties. Even if they're not intentionally getting the coronavirus, they're spreading it, and that's really bad. And I want to make clear to your listeners that that is happening. When it comes to COVID parties, these so-called things where people are actually getting together and trying to get sick, the bottom line is, is it possible that these are happening? Yes, it's possible. Is there any actual evidence that a COVID party has happened? No, there's no evidence. And so my plea to my fellow journalists is don't write about these things as if they're happening until you actually find the evidence. It's as simple as that. Gilad Edelman, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Next, we have a pair of stories of how two different states failed in the coronavirus responses. The first up is Arizona. We've seen a number of states experience a surge in coronavirus cases and become new hotspots. Largely avoiding a big outbreak early in the pandemic, Arizona now has the highest per capita rate of COVID-19 cases in America over the past week. Local officials and public health experts are pointing the finger at the leadership for being complacent and not preparing for a future wave when they had the time. For more on how Arizona wasn't ready for their coronavirus surge, we'll speak to Dan Frosch, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. What you saw in Arizona was a state that was doing relatively well in the early days of the pandemic. Their case counts were extremely low. There was a sense that they had somehow managed to sidestep the crisis that was hitting states in the Northeast and elsewhere. And they went to a shelter in place order when things were relatively stable and people abided by the shelter-in-place order. And that's really when the problems started. During that time period, when things were going okay, the state and public health officials did not anticipate an inevitable surge that was going to happen. So they did not stock up on testing equipment. They did not devise a contact tracing plan, at least a robust contact tracing plan. All sort of the, the things that the CDC and other public health experts have been saying, look, we need to do this, especially when things are not terrible, so that when they are terrible, we're prepared. And then lastly, they 
did a real sort of full bore reopening where restaurants, nightclubs, bars, movie theaters, gyms all reopened with very little compliance or enforcement mechanisms built into the reopening. And so you have this combination of a sort of wide open reopening and a lack of testing, contact tracing, and enforcement and compliance ordinances that had been set up during this period of downtime that all sort of have led us on the path to where we are today in Arizona. What has the governor, Governor Doug Ducey, said of his response to all of this? Because I remember a time where he didn't want to mandate people wearing masks, and he even refused to let individual counties make their own rules. He said, no, you can't do it. you got to follow the state rules. He had to right. cave in on right. that later on. What has his response been to this? Ducey has taken a tremendous amount of heat for what local authorities and critics of his have seen as a much more aggressive reopening than an aggressive response to the pandemic. So he has, after taking a lot of criticism from doctors and also from local mayors and civic leaders who wanted, as you pointed out, to implement their own mask ordinances and were, were explicitly prohibited from doing so by the governor's executive orders when he reopened, he's backtracked on a number of things. He has allowed cities and counties and municipalities to enact their own mask ordinances. He has closed down movie theaters and gyms again and made restaurants 50% capacity, and he's at least sought to sort of broaden testing capacity. The problem is it may be too little too late to a certain extent because the outbreak hit Arizona so forcefully over the past few weeks that these measures, which critics would say should have been enacted two months ago, are now having to operate as a way to dig Arizona out of the hole that it's in. And so that's why you can't do contact tracing, because you can't do contact tracing, which is sort of a time-intensive, resource-intensive operation, if you haven't planned for enough contact tracers and you're getting inundated with 3,000 cases a day. You spoke to a woman whose father contracted COVID-19. I think he might have died if I'm not missing it. But, you know, he said he was following the guidance of the leaders saying, hey, it's not that bad here. Hey, you can go out. I want businesses to reopen. And, you know, people that are cooped mm -hmm. up, businesses that are shut, they want to reopen. Obviously, everybody wants to get back sure. to normal. But if the guidance is not there, we saw the stories, massive parties, all sorts of things. And as I mentioned, you spoke to one woman whose father contracted it because he said he was following the guidance. My colleague spoke to a woman whose father had contracted COVID and, and she had spoken to him. She had warned him about going out. She didn't feel it was safe for him. And he said, well, the governor and the president have really been pushing for the reopening of the economy. So they're the guys in charge and businesses are open. So I'm going to follow the orders of the state here. And he went out and he contracted COVID several weeks later and he passed away. And one of his last conversations he had with his daughter, he heartbreaking. He said, you know, I should have listened to you. And look, governors of all political stripes, leaders of all political stripes are put in incredibly difficult positions here because obviously they have to worry about the economics of their states, right. their business owners who will never be able to reopen again. So there's a lot of competing factors and we've never seen anything like this. So in Arizona's case, there was clearly a temptation because their cases were so low to say, hey, everything's fine here. Let's just open everything back up. Somehow we avoided this. Even though in the back of your mind, you're hearing these voices from public health experts saying, look, we, it may look fine now, but it's actually not fine and it won't be fine for a little while. So we need to wait. We need to be patient. 
Dan Frosch, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And now on to California. California is largely closing again amid a rise in coronavirus cases. Governor Gavin Newsom has ordered once again the closure of indoor dining and limits on gyms, churches, hair salons, and other businesses. And as cases go up, testing continues to be a problem to get under control. From the very beginning of the pandemic, the state fell behind and has been struggling to keep up ever since. For more on California's failure at mass testing, we'll speak to Emily Baumgartner, reporter at the LA Times. So what you're looking at today was born from many mistakes leading up to this moment. I think it's pretty easy to look back over the past month and attribute what we're seeing right now to the reopenings. But in reality, the issues stem from much further back. In the early stages of this, for example, it was federal restrictions that really limited California's ability to get a handle on this. It was federal restrictions on who could be tested, the the really narrow criteria back in January and February. And that trickled over the last several months through several sort of cascading steps that led for this to get out of control. And I just want to put into context for people the reason that testing is so important. It's not just an individual test result that tells you whether you should isolate. The reason it's so important for containing the outbreak is for contact tracing, something you've probably heard lots about. But right now, if the testing does not scale up, it's simply impossible to identify which people are continuing to spread the virus. So testing is really the central cornerstone for solving a crisis like this. You know, there's a lot of people that question, oh, well, it only has figures that point in time. And that's true. But as you mentioned, you have to nail it right when it's happening. So you can do that contact tracing, tell the proper people to start isolating and hopefully limit a big spread. You actually started your story off with a brief example of what happened. The Times identified a third flight that was coming into LAX where public health officials really didn't say anything. They didn't alert travelers that they were at risk for infection. This was, you know, in the early stages of all this. And you tell about the husband of the family returned from China. The family started getting sick, but they didn't get tested. They moved out into their community. Then people at their school, their kid's school got sick. And it became this cluster right there. And they couldn't do it because the family couldn't get tested. This is a family who even now will tell you they don't know whether coronavirus is what they were infected with. This was in the early stages when the respiratory symptoms were not distinguishable from the flu. And they don't know, but they tried harder than most families I can imagine trying to get a test to be responsible and to stay away from the community. In fact, they were self-isolating by choice in their home before this was ever something that officials asked them to do. So it just goes to show you that members of the public were eager to prevent this from spreading and to participate in whatever way they could. But it was a lack of direction and a lack of coordination from the top, both at the federal level and also at the state level, that allowed this to sort of spiral to a point where people lost the ability to sort of take autonomy over over decisions and keep this virus from spreading. So as in the early stages of this, the virus was starting to spread. We really didn't get a handle on the true number of it. And then what happened with the labs? Because this was another critical part. And we heard a lot of this story in the past, but you actually lay out the chronology of this so well. That's why I wanted to talk to you about this. The labs were facing shortages of supplies. The demand was increasing. It's something that's happening right now as we speak again. So tell us how that was going. There's a couple different infrastructures you want to take note of here. The first is public health laboratories. Those are the government-funded laboratories across the country and across the state that are funded by the government. That's important because those specific laboratories have been crippled for years. One-fourth of all of California's public health laboratories have closed in the last two decades. 
So we're talking about laboratories who had zero money, very thin staff, totally unprepared for something such as a pandemic or really any type of biological emergency. They've been pleading for funding for a long time, but until a crisis occurs, it's hard to convince officials that this is something that they need to be preparing for financially. That's one side of the story. Of course, as you know, right from the White House down, they did acquire lots of support and help from commercial laboratories such as Quest and LabCorp around early March, which many people hoped would be a major turning point. And in some ways it was because testing was expanded drastically. But the limitation that was placed on commercial companies was just a physical one. There's only so much supply across the world. And many, many countries were demanding the exact same things from the supply chain at the exact same time. So specific types of plastics, specific supplies, carrier fluids, reagents. I'm sure you heard lots about chemical reagents. So the whole world is demanding something that there's a physically limited amount of. And so no money can really buy a solution to that problem. The backlog now, this is the next part of it. And one of the people he spoke to, I laugh because it's such a funny memory, but in this case, it's not so funny, obviously. But they said that this uh, deluge of specimens, this backlog, resembled that accelerating conveyor belt of confections on the classic Chocolate Factory episode of I Love Lucy. Just everything backing up and not being able to catch up. That's kind of what happened after that. That's what lab workers and lab officials describe it as looking like. The one that the specific woman that you're speaking about is a very high-ranking lab representative for a hospital system, and she piled those samples into her own car and drove it to another laboratory to try to get them tested. So this is sort of a prime example of the way that the bureaucracy sort of broke down the system. That was plan C. That was already two things that had failed her to the point where she had to drive the samples herself personally. I mean... Good for her for wanting to get those things done. But man, that is that is really (laughs) tough there. So this leads us all back to contact tracing and why that's so important. Everything's backed up. We're not identifying fresh cases, the new cases that are critical because those people maybe don't know they're still out in the community infecting others and contact tracing. I mean, right now we have one thousand seven hundred fifty nine contact tracers for more than 10 million residents. That's nowhere near enough. I mean, if you were to compare this to what we saw in the beginning when you had dozens of contact tracers to a case, that would never be replicated right now, certainly. But you do hope that your staff is strong enough and broad enough that you're able to very quickly react to cases. I mentioned this earlier, but I want to mention it again now. The speed of testing impacts contact tracers greatly because even Curative, Curative is an example of a very strong, popular company that the tech startup from San Francisco that did a great, great deal of testing in L.A. County. L.A. County abandoned using that company. And and one of the reasons that I was told by a spokesperson for the county was the lag in test results. And, you know, if you if you have a lag such as 48 hours, you've lost the window in which you can go identify the case's contacts before they continue the spread. So we're talking about a very quick turnaround that you need in test results in order to adequately carry out your contact tracing with your strong and large staff. Emily Baumgartner, medical reporter at the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.